What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to or watching as the case may be. Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things. We contemplate them. We turn them over in our minds and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me. My countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. We are not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. And today we're going to talk about some evidence for God's existence. There are many logical reasons or logical arguments for the existence of God. Six of them can be found in Paul's Mars Hill Discourse, and you can recognize their use, although it would be centuries before academia actually codified them or acknowledged them or what have you. I'm not sure the the verbiage to use. I did write an article on Substack about this, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Insights, I believe it's called. Let Let me get in there and I'll tell you the article. It is linked in the show notes. Ancient Wisdom, Modern Insight, Arguments for God's Existence in Paul's Mars Hill Sermon. But anyway, it's good to see everybody. And for those of you that are coming in, hello, Sheila Coase, good to see you. For those of you that are coming in on YouTube, be sure and share the YouTube. If you if you, if you you would, share it to your social media platforms. Uh, you the, the greatest thing you can do to help us get the word out and to help us grow our audience besides giving money for advertisement is interacting with the content and with YouTube, a like and a share is so big. And for those of you who might not be aware, we are now on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, It's Christianity Now at 1 Chronicles 1232. That's the verse about the sons of Issachar. First Chronicles twelve thirty two. We want to have understanding of the times, but before we go much further, uh, we need to have a word from our sponsor, Lindsay at lindsayfaydotson at gmail dot com. Are you part of a church congregation or any other organization seeking effective ways to spread the word about your event? Well, look no further. Lindsay Dotson specializes in designing modern advertisements for churches or other organizations. Whether it's flyers, postcards, or social media graphics, Lindsay has got you covered. Reach out through a private message on Facebook or send an email to lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com for more details. Don't miss this opportunity to make your message resonate both far and wide. Contact Lindsay Dotson, lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com today. And she does good work. She's done good work for us up here at Riverview, and she's done some other work for some other folks who are listeners to the show. And supporting her and uh, contracting with her for your modern advertisements, for your events and such like, that's directly benefiting the show. So thank you so much for that. Now, I'm going to put the tip jar up here. I leave the tip jar up here because some of you have asked that we've done it. Uh, We do Patreon. Uh, I'm going to kind of get away from buy me a coffee. I just don't feel like there's enough of a return on investment. we gotta we gotta focus more on some other things. If you want to support us monetarily, the best way to do it is Substack, a five dollar a month subscription. You can also do Patreon, which is in the show notes, or you can just send money through PayPal, www dot 
nearchurches at gmail.com. Now, let's get into the chats. Good morning, everybody. Uh, as I said, uh, Sheila Cole and those of you that have come in, uh, thank you so much for being here. Now, let's get into uh, the meat of the podcast. So again, as I said, I'm going to read the uh, introduction paragraph to the article. I'm not going to read the article in its entirety because I've already done that. Uh, each of my articles that I write, or each of the articles on Christianity Now, that even if I get other people to write them, I narrate them for the podcast on Substack because some of the readers said it's it's easier for us to listen to it uh, as opposed to read it. But uh, let me get the first paragraph here, and then we'll dive right in. The quest to rationalize or experience the, the, the divine has been a cornerstone of human history. While religious and philosophical landscapes have changed dramatically over the millennia, some core arguments for the existence of God remain surprisingly consistent. One compelling example is the Apostle Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, recorded in Acts chapter 17. In this ancient discourse, Paul touches upon several logical arguments for the existence of God, six of them to be precise, which interestingly parallel arguments formalized much later in academic philosophy and theology. This article, or this podcast, I should say, aims to explore these arguments in the context of Acts 17, while also relating them to modern understanding of religious and philosophical thought. So, uh, remember, you got to understand, to set the stage, this is ancient Greece. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. Um, you have uh, philosophy ramping up. You have the Enlightenment period. All of this good stuff is going on. And you have these great centers of thought, Mars Hill being one of them. And Paul, well, we'll just go to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things, well, excuse me. Uh, yeah, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found one with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. So this is Paul in the first century at this center of thought, this this place where these scholars would gather and they either wanted to hear to tell some new thing. And, of course, we have that in uh, verse 21. Uh, For all the Athenians, strangers, and strangers which were uh, there spent their time in nothing else but either tell or hear some new thing. That's verse 21. Well, Paul was de debating and disputing with these philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics, Interestingly enough, the Stoics have always fascinated me. The word Stoic comes from the Greek word for a porch. The, what would you say, founder, the proprietor? We'll, we'll just say the founder of Stoicism. Stoicism started by, um, was started by a man named Zeno, uh, a philosopher of the day, and he would meet his students on the porch. And they would talk about their philosophy, and they became known, or they came to be known as the Stoics because they met on the porch. And the Greek word for porch is stoa. And the word Stoic has actually etymologically developed 
into a word that means emotionless or not given to emotion. In other words, if a tragedy happens, you are going to have some people that are melting down emotionally and some people who are very stoic where you cannot tell on the outside what their emotions are on the inside. Well, that's the Stoics. And when you read Stoic philosophy and the writings from the Stoics, they will use God in a capital G, but they are materialist. They mean the universe. So a lot of philosophers of the day considered the ultimate supreme God as the universe, or they considered the universe as the ultimate supreme God. I don't know what's the easiest way to conceptualize that. But that kind of gives you a background into what Paul has kind of elbowed his way into. Uh, good to see you, uh, Jason, and good to see you, Iva Potter. Thank you all for tuning in. Incidentally, remember, be the algorithm for us. Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, or not Instagram, uh, X. We're, we're streaming live on X, formerly known as Twitter, by the way. Anyway, um, so this this is the this is the environment that Paul kind of elbowed his way into, and he's saying, "Look, as I passed by and I beheld your devotions, you were so superstitious that you were so scared of leaving anything out that you wanted to make sure you got everything." And incidentally, well, I, look up the word henotheism. You'll find that a very interesting study. I won't get into it for time's sake. Good morning, Facebook user. Remember, if I call you Facebook user, it's because your name pops up like that. And, of course, he says this is John Exum. Well, good deal. Good to see you, John. Let me get back on the captions. I'll put the tip jar back up. And, uh, yeah, there we go. All right. So he says, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I saw an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, in verse 22, Paul says, I perceive that in all things you are too. The King James Version says superstitious. And I was kind of, I don't know if I'm going to say hoodwinked, but I kind of bought in for a while to the idea that the, that, that, that the translation of this word superstitious, that it would have been better translated religious. And I've always made the point, well, you know, Paul started out on the, same side of the ditch as these people. And he's saying, listen, if you have a problem at all, it's you're just too religious. And, and nobody finds it offensive that you say you're too religious. I don't think that's true. I think that, that this was a pejorative that Paul was using. He was saying, look, you folks are so scared, so occultish, so superstitious that you have a fear of leaving anything out that along with if you're spill salt, you'll throw a pinch of it over your left shoulder. You won't let a black cat cross your path. You won't walk under a, a ladder. You think you're going to have seven years of bad luck when you break a mirror. You think that there's some God out there. You're so afraid that there might be some entity out there that you don't know about, and you want to try to mitigate the offense to that unknown entity, that unknown God, that you make an altar with the description to the unknown God. And I put forth to you, says Paul, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him I'm going to declare to you. In other words, you're so superstitious, you're scared of making some unknown God angry. Let me tell you about him. And I think that's how it went. 
Angela Noble says, I still do that even though I'm an XHR. I don't know what an XHR is, Angela. But anyway, good morning from Connie Barden. Good to see you. And David James Stafford. Good to see you, brother. All right. So Paul starts his sermon with an identity of the unknown God. And this is also the first logical argument for the existence of God. Paul begins his sermon by directly addressing the Athenians' religious sensibilities. All right? He asserts the existence of a creator who made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Folks, this is the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument, by way of illustration, consider the chicken and the egg. A chicken hatches from an egg, which is laid by another chicken, and so on. Yet for this chain to exist, this causal chain, it's the cause and effect, there has to be a chicken that was not hatched from an egg. In other words, there has to be an uncaused first cause, just like there has to be an unhatched first chicken. Well, how do Christians explain that? You go all the way back to the beginning, and you have to find the prime mover, the uncaused first cause. Now, the broadest causal chain that there is is the universe and whatever caused the universe. So the universe is an effect. Well, that's the end of the causal chain. There's nothing ever going to be besides the universe, okay? Evolutionary, evolutionary. speaking from an evolutionary standpoint, there's nothing besides the universe. Well, what caused the universe? Because it would be a logical absurdity to say that the universe caused itself. Like that chicken you see running around. It's a logical absurdity to think that that chicken caused itself. So it had to be caused by something else. Well, what was it caused by? The chicken was caused by an egg. But it would be a logical absurdity to say that egg caused caused itself. So then what caused that egg? Well, a chicken. But it would be a logical absurdity to say that chicken caused itself. So what caused that chicken? An egg. And you see how we're making these, these chain link, the daisy chaining together from the very last chicken all the way to the very first chicken. And then logically, you have to have a first chicken that was not caused by an egg. So you have the uncaused first cause or the unhatched first chicken. The universe is an effect. So that's one part of the chain. The universe daisy chains into a cause. The universe cannot cause itself. Therefore, there has to be an uncaused first cause, i.e. a prime mover. What is that? Well, I put forth to you that the atheist the evolutionist and the creationist believe the same thing, the cosmological argument for the existence of a supreme being. What do the atheist, what, what, what does the atheistic evolutionist do 
whenever they get to the prime mover, whenever they follow the causal chain back, they follow it back and they say, well, the, the prime mover had to be a, a phenomenon that superseded the laws of physics, the natural laws of the cosmos. Do you understand what Christians, what creationists call that? We call it a miracle. So the, take, a, take, the, take an oak tree. You have an oak tree comes from an acorn, but that acorn had to come from an oak tree. All right. Well, what about that oak tree that produced that acorn? Well, it had to in turn come from an acorn. And that acorn in turn had to come from an oak tree. And that oak tree in turn had to come from an acorn. All the way back, however many thousands of years, to the very first tree. Well, how did you get the very first tree? The same way you got the very first chicken. God had to create it. It had to come, it had to, it had to come in a way that is what we would say miraculous. Where the atheist the the atheist atheistic evolutionist would say that the uncaused or, or the acorn the excuse me the very first oak tree that didn't come from an acorn was a scientific phenomenon that defied the laws of the cosmos that's the same thing as saying a miracle folks the very first chicken that did not come from an egg but just was there it had to come about by a phenomenon that superseded or defied the laws of physics, the laws of the cosmos. What do we call that? That's, an, that, that's a miracle. So you have the universe was caused by what? Some kind of phenomenon that violates or supersedes the laws of the cosmos, i.e. a miracle. The atheist and the creationists both believe that the origin of the universe happens because of a supernatural event. We call it a miracle as Christians. The atheist, the atheistic evolutionist, they just call it a scientific anomaly, a phenomenon that defies the laws of physics. Good morning, Facebook user. And that's right. God spoke everything into creation. And you know, that's interesting. God really didn't speak everything into creation. God thought everything into creation. Then he ordered from that which was already there things into being. Think about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God brooded upon the water. Then God said, let there be light. There was already everything present, existential in nature, for light to be separated from darkness. There was already th everything there present, existential, for the firmament to be separated from the water. Very interesting concept that. We typically think of creation as ex nihilo, when it is. It's creation of getting something from nothing. But the something that came from nothing was all of the cosmic ingredients for the universe. Hello, Missy Malone. Good to see you. So it was all the cosmic ingredients for the universe. 
And then when God said, let there be light, when God said, let's make a separation of the land or the firmament and the, and the waters, uh, when he formed all of the living creatures and stuff, he's forming them out of things that are already existential, which is a beautiful way to think about how we're made in the image of God because God had a will and he willed creation into existence, the universe into existence. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness on the face of the deep. The spirit of God brooded upon the waters. So he created all of this and it was just a big ball of chaos. And then the spirit trans or, or delivered the word. All right. And the word is the organizing factor that causes the separations that organize the chaos of creation. And that's exactly how man functions. That's exactly how God functions in everything. Every time you introduce the divine logos, the word, you go from chaos to order. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in 1 Corinthians 14. That's the exact same thing as saying God is not the author of chaos, but of order. So God had this idea in his mind, his will, and he used words to order it. And those words were born along by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing how that works. Anyway, uh, so we have this cosmological argument for the existence of God. Uh, Tyler Hawkins says, Paul's speech makes for an excellent study. Looking forward to listening to the replay on Podbean later. I think it's great that you have uh, when you revisit topics you've done in the past, keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Tyler Hawkins. All right. Um, next is a logical argument for the existence of God that's somewhat abstract. It's a little difficult to to wrap our minds around if we're not used to thinking in these ways. Um, and it's hard to explain this in a succinct way. I'm actually going to read from this section of the article, Okay. And then I'm going to try to offer some of my con commentary to, to, uh, to help. I, I, I was going to say to help us out, but really it's to help me out because I want to make sure I'm explaining this correctly. Nine times out of 10, if I try to teach something and you're like, Tony, that doesn't make a lick of sense. It's not because of your inability to understand it. It's because I have conveyed the message in some way that is less than optimal. So maybe this segment of the podcast won't fall victim to that. In the next part of his sermon, Paul mentions that God is neither worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing that he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Here, Paul lays the groundwork for the ontological argument for the existence of God, which argues for the existence of God based on the concept of God as the greatest conceivable being. According to this argument, if we can conceive of a being that is greater than God, then that being would be God. However, by definition, no being can surpass God in greatness. All right? Now, so think about this. You got to put your you got to put your geek cap on a little bit. Think about if in, in all of the conceived alterations of the cosmos 
that we can fathom what would be the most powerful being that would transcend them all and be the most powerful being in all of those perceived alterations of the cosmos. It's, it's God almighty. It's the one that spoke everything into existence. That's it. And I'm using that verbiage that everything he spoke, everything into existence. He did. He, I mean, he, he, he spoken into existence as in he created everything and you've got this big ball of chaos and he said, let there be light. Let there be the firmament. Let there be a light in the day, a light in the night. Let there be the birds of the air. Let there be the fowls of the, of the, or, or the, the, the beast of the sea, the birds of the air, the fowls of the land. Then he said, let us make man in our image. Folks, that's powerful. You can't get any more powerful than that. In fact, you can't even conceive of a being that powerful. And how do we know that, that Jehovah God is the most powerful being of which we can conceive? Because every other quote-unquote God that mankind has come up with has been lesser than Jehovah God. Even Allah in, in the book of, in the Quran, sorry, even Allah of the Quran is lesser than Jehovah God. The Athenians had many gods, each with needs and desires that required human action. These gods were limited. They were dependent. And thus, by definition, they were lesser gods. By contrast, the God that Paul describes does not need anything from humans. He is self-sufficient. He's the one that provides life and breath. In ontological terms, in other words, ontology is the study of being. In ontological terms, this makes him the most powerful and perfect being, fulfilling then the criteria for God. And again, if you want to do some more study on ontology and the ontological argument of the existence of God, there are um, there, just Google ontological arguments for the existence of God, and you should have some population in your search results of some pretty scholarly sources. Uh, I think there's a, a source from Cambridge and a sort and a source from Oxford, and one other place that I really found to be helpful. I probably should have found those again for the podcast and linked them in the show notes, but I am, I am, um, I, I am not, I am not supreme. I'm not perfect, <laughs> but the, the idea about the, uh, the ontological argument, Paul has said, look, these, this God that you don't know, he's not served with, he's not worshiped with men's hands. He doesn't need anything from man. These gods that you have made, that you have conceived in your own mind, they are dependent upon you. The God of the cosmos, Jehovah God, his existence is not dependent upon you. I watched the modern movie about Perseus. What's it called? Clash of the Titans. And in the modern movie, I think, I think the gods... I think what made the gods powerful in the Roman pantheon or the Greek pantheon 
is the amount of people who prayed to them. So if you had a whole lot of people praying to you as a God, then you were powerful. And the idea is without the people, you see it's a symbiotic relationship. The gods need the people just as much as the people need the gods. Well, that's what man comes up with. How do you know that that Jehovah God What's what's the what what's the reason behind our understanding of him being existential in nature? It's because man couldn't fathom something that powerful. Something that powerful would have to be revealed. Revealed, and he was. We see in we see in Romans. We'll put my mark here in Acts seventeen. We'll go to Romans chapter one and notice this is very interesting because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. Folks, it's not just that people can look at nature and discern the existence of God. It's just at one time, God revealed himself to mankind. And that's how we have this idea of God in our, in our, in our cultures, in our psyche, um, we're going to talk about the religious argument for the existence of God. I, th- I think that's why every man has a God-shaped hole in their chest. I agree 100% with Blase Pascal that we have that great hole in our chest that can only be filled with God. Anyway, all right. So number next, let me go to, so we've cut off the ontological argument. Now let's go to the next, which is the teleological argument. And again, if you've got some questions about the ontological argument for the existence of God, put them in the chat and I will get to them. I'll try my best to answer them. But the ontological argument for the existence of God is one of the more abstract arguments. Uh, Remember, logic doesn't prove anything. The only thing logic does is answer the question of whether or not it is more or less reasonable to believe in the almighty Jehovah God of the Bible. And I put forth to you that although the ontological argument for the existence of God, or excuse me, the ontological argument for the existence of God is one of the best, when it's understood properly, it's one of the best arguments in favor of the reasonableness of the identity of a supreme being being Jehovah God. The cosmological argument for the existence of God doesn't necessarily testify to Jehovah God. The cosmological argument for the existence of God simply testifies of it. It 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 it. The cosmological argument for the existence of God says it is more reasonable than not that a prime mover exists. That some being outside of time and space exists. It's not necessarily it's not necessarily testifying of the Jehovah God of the Bible. Now, the teleological argument for the existence of God, um, verse 26 of Acts chapter 17, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Continuing his sermon, Paul states and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. 
This statement reflects the teleological argument of the existence of God, which emphasizes the purposeful design and organization of the world. This argument posits the complexity that the complexity and order seen in the universe cannot be produced by random chance, but rather it screams of the necessity of a designer. Paul highlights the intricacy of human existence and the ordering of nations, implying that there's a purpose and intent behind these arrangements. That's what the teleological argument is. It emphasizes that the fine-tuning for required for life as we know it to exist affirms that there must be a purpose and intelligent agent behind the world's design. And of course, Paul asserts that that agent is God. We, and I, I shared a, a picture on Christianity Now Facebook and on the Instagram of a bunch of rocks or seashells or something on a beach, and they're arranged in the shape of a tiger. And the caption is, you wouldn't just come to the beach one day, look at this arrangement and think, well, that just happened by chance. Looky there. Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't find a watch in a in an abandoned warehouse and think, well, this watch must have just evolved over time because look at all the pieces of this abandoned warehouse. There's enough pieces here to, to make a watch, so they must have all come together by happenstance. I heard one, one old preacher say, uh, believing in atheistic evolution is about as logically sound as thinking that you could blow up a watch uh, a, 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 a watch part warehouse and out of that chaos get watches. That's something to think about. Anyway, all right. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily might, they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Folks, Paul's statement implies that the search for God is not in vain, but it's rather it is innate. It's an innate human endeavor. This argument is often bolstered by the observation that religious impulses are universal among humans. It implies an intrinsic spiritual or religious component to human life. And incidentally, it also dovetails uh, famously with the notion expressed by Blase Pascal that there is a God-shaped hole. Nope, hold on just a second. There's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. Folks, the only thing that you can use to make yourself feel validated, that you can use to make yourself feel purposeful, is you orient yourself to the highest possible good of which you can conceive and you press towards that mark. That's the religious argument for the existence of God. Where, where would humans have come up with that? And it ties into the aesthetic argument for the existence of God by virtue of the fact that we can think of something higher than ourselves and see the beauty and transcendence, that that testifies to the existence of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about the moral argument for the existence of God. Verse 28, this is the, it's the first line of verse 28. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Um, let me let me stop there. Uh, this is a profound declaration. Brian Allen, good morning. So what we have uh, with the uh, moral argument for the, for the existence of God, I want to read from my article some here. I realized something that I use the word profound a lot, but I let it stay here because I think in this situation, profound is really good. In a profound declaration, Paul notes, for in him we live and move and have our being. This sentiment corresponds with the moral argument for the existence of God, which asserts that the universe has a moral standard and that the moral standard requires a moral lawgiver. Uh, hello, Sword and Pearls, good to see you. So with the idea that human beings, whether they realize it or not, whether they want to or not, they live within a moral law, and there must be a moral lawgiver, then some interesting things have played out on the world stage. Namely, after World War II, the Nazis of Germany were put on trial on the world stage. Now, their defense is, well, Germany was a sovereign nation. How can you hold us accountable? We were following the highest law to which we were amenable. There was no other law higher than the German law for us. So how can you, if we're not citizens of the United States or Canada or Italy or France or England, Europe, how can, if we're not, well, I said Europe, that shows my ignorance. Uh, we'll say England, uh, Great Britain. If we're not citizens of any of those, then how can you try us for war crimes? We, 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 we weren't, a, your law wasn't authoritative to us. And collectively, the world said, no, we're trying you by a law that supersedes and transcends the world. We are, we are trying you by the higher moral standard of God's law. I just wonder if in 2023 something like this happened, would the world come together and be able to convict the Nazis for war crimes? I'm I'm very scared that it wouldn't. And I will tell you one reason why I'm scared it wouldn't. It's because of what's going on with Israel and Palestine. Uh, not, not necessarily Palestine, but Israel and Hamas. I think you got to be careful conflating Hamas and Palestine, but sometimes it's hard not to conflate because Hamas is who is in power. So anyway, I don't want to get... I don't, I don't want to dive off in that, but uh, we have people who are who claim to be liberal, who claim to uh, be humanitarian, that is chanting genocidal remarks, calling for the death of all Jews, and some of them don't even realize that's what they're doing. And it's the the question is always, well, 
you know, one man's one man's rebellion or one one man's oppressive regime is another man's. For what what I can't think of how it goes now. One 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 man's terrorist group is another man's freedom fighter. I think that's close. Well, that's absolutely absurd. The um, the higher moral authority says that you don't kill women and children and you don't hide behind women and children and you don't put your military operations in the basement of hospitals and orphan homes. Anyway, so you have the moral argument for the existence of God right here in, in chapter 17 of verse 28. In him we move and live and have our being. Let's talk about the aesthetic argument for the plea, for the existence of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 29. Paul concludes by admonishing the Athenians, saying, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead as like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Paul introduces the idea. Hello, hide and watch. Good to see you. Paul introduces the idea that can be associated with the aesthetic argument for the existence of God, um, or it introduces an idea. I'm so sorry. I can't English this morning. So this argument, the aesthetic argument, posits that the human appreciation for beauty and art and aesthetic value, I guess I could, de- let me define that term aesthetic. Um, I use it so much, I'm going to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, aesthetic is concerned with beauty or the appreciation of beauty. So the aesthetic argument means that, summed up, since human beings can appreciate beauty and can appreciate the transcendent nature of art and beauty. In other words, we can conceptualize something outside of ourselves that we must have been created. We must have a divine spark. All right. Um, I'm going to read this because this is another one that's kind of abstract. Um, This argument posits that the human appreciation for beauty, art, and the aesthetic value points to a creator who endowed humans with these sensibilities. Humans are unique among animals in their capability for abstract thought, creativity, and appreciation for beauty. In other words, you'll never see a cow gaze up at the heavens and contemplate her place in it. You'll never look at, see a cow in a field of daisies contemplating the beauty of such flowers. She just eats them. So humans are unique among animals in their capacity for this abstract thought, creativity, and appreciation for beauty. According to Paul, the art and symbols that humans create to represent the divine although crafted from precious materials, are inadequate to capture God's essence. The very fact that humans can appreciate abstract qualities like beauty and attempt to manifest it in art suggests a deeper divine origin for such sensibilities. Folks, this is the divine spark. This is This is the part of us, we're created in the image of God, and God appreciates beauty, God appreciates the aesthetic, and God wants us to transcend, and God then endowed us with the ability 
to ascertain the transcendent in the everyday life that we lead. That's why from, from, the, from the dawn of man, you see people practicing art, poetry, song. Paul argues that humans, being the offspring of God, are imbued with attributes that reflect a divine creator. This artistic and aesthetic faculty in humans are not merely means that humans are not uh, biological traits. Excuse me, I read that wrong. The artistic and aesthetic faculties in humans are not mere biological traits, but indicators indications of a higher order of existence pointing towards God as that ultimate source. So that's it. That's all six. That is all six um, logical arguments for the existence of God that is in this sermon from Paul on Mars Hill. Now, Paul delivered a masterful sermon that anticipates these six arguments for the existence of God while these arguments were not formally identified during Paul's age. They have been extensively developed in subsequent philosophical and theological works. These connections enrich our understanding of the divine from a, from different perspectives. Uh, the cosmological argument for the existence of God uh, is found in a 13th century text, the Summa Theologica, by Thomas Aquinas. The ontological argument for the existence of God was conceived by Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. Uh, the teleological argument for the existence of God was uh, formulated and formalized in the early 19th century uh, from a guy named William Paley in his work, Natural Theology. Then you have the religious argument for the existence of God, and I don't have a date for that. Why don't I, why don't I have a date for that? I need to go back and edit my article and put a date. William James explored the universally universality of religious experience in his work, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and I need a date for that, or at least a time frame. And I've got and I've got another one that don't have a time frame. Okay. Anyway, the moral argument, Immanuel Kant, late 18th century. He talks about that in his uh, work, Critique of Pure Reason, and the aesthetic argument uh, for the existence of God is another one. I don't have a time frame on up here, but I tell you what, um, Frederick Schiller broached the aesthetic argument for the for the existence of God in his work Letters Upon the Aesthetic Education of Man. So Schiller for the aesthetic was 1795, Immanuel Kant was 1781, James William was 1902, and then of course William Paley was the early 19th century, uh, Anselm of Canterbury was the 11th century, Thomas Aquinas was the 13th. Folks, let me tell you, there is no good reason not to believe in the existence of an all-powerful creator. Now, I'm not, if you listen to this and you're an atheist, I'm not saying that you have to go and, um, I, I'm not saying that you're going to be convinced that the God of the Bible, Jehovah God, is the supreme being of the universe. You may be more convinced by another 
so-called God. But I put forth to you that if you will but admit that it is logically reasonable to say that a almighty creator of the heaven and the earth and all that in them is exist, then I would love to study the Bible with you and convince you that that all-powerful creator is, in fact, Jehovah God. And I love the way the guys at Apologetics Press handle this. I say the guys at Apologetics Press. I've, I've listened to several lectures from Kyle Butt, and he takes it from the standpoint of if you were to set the Bible on a witness stand and ask the Bible questions, would the Bible's testimony of itself be credible? And, of course, Kyle asserts that it is, and he makes a really good case for that. And I think that's the way us Christians, we need, we need to learn to argue. Remember, one of the things that an atheist will never do, that a Christian will, is admit they could be wrong. Make sure that whenever you think about these things as a Christian and you kind of formulate how you would answer certain arguments and stuff like that, have them straight in your mind. Become a student of these things. 50 years ago, there's no reason anybody would ever need to have this in the United States because every everybody you walked up and down the street and you knocked on their door, if you said, hey, listen, do you believe the Bible is the unequivocally inerrant univocal word of God. If they understood those words, they would say yes. So you could start from the fact that God, from, from an understanding, a common understanding, and uh, uh, I hate to use the word assumption. I'll just use it. You'll start from the common understanding and assumption that Jehovah God of the New Testament and Old Testament is existential and that the Bible is authoritative for us today. But nowadays, if you go out and you do any kind of evangelism, the chances of you meeting someone, even in your very small Bible Belt town, your the chances of you meeting someone who's a full blown atheist that doesn't believe the Bible is true in any capacity is very very high. So that's why, as a Christian, you need to outfit yourself with something like this. And and look, I'm not saying that my article is the be all end all, but it's certainly better than nothing. Just just click on the link and click on the link in the show notes and familiarize yourself with these articles. I wish that Dan Cates still produced what he called his Cates charts, and I, I, the the Cates charts. He has some charts on Christian evidences that I think is wonderful for every Christian to have, but he just he, he doesn't make enough money printing them and selling them. But um, I think you might be able to get them digitally. And um, anyway, that's I, I don't even I wouldn't even know how to tell you how to go about getting them. I probably shouldn't have even mentioned it. But uh, but anyway, uh, find you some kind of find you some kind of uh, uh, resource that puts things in a way where you can understand it and try to to exercise that Christian apologetics or Christian evidences muscle in your brain to be able to uh, discuss religious and spiritual things with folks that don't even believe God exists. 
And that's it. That's the podcast for today. I hope I've said something that has been uplifting to you. I hope I've said something that's made you think, that's made you wrinkle your brain. I hope you look at Paul's Mars Hill discourse differently. I hope you read it every day. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you something. This little New Testament Psalms I've had since about 20, 2015, um, it wasn't too long, if you'll see right there. See how that says C-O-T-A, and the, or excuse me, C-O-T-R-M-A. And I've just got it right there in the margin of my Bible on Paul's Mars Hill Sermon. And I can open this up. I could preach it right here. I could preach, I could preach a good sermon about the existence of God right here from this text and never have to go anywhere else. Um, so just my admonition, my encouragement, my call to action is assimilate material like this and, um, and all that, uh, Scott Beck, where did you get that? Tony, are you talking about my new Testament and Psalms? Uh, if you are, I got this off eBay and, uh, they're, they're hard to get a hold of. You can find them every once in a while. You're going to pay a pretty penny for them unless, unless it's something that somebody doesn't know what they have. I think I, I know I paid over a hundred dollars for this. Um, there was, I had one I paid about $200 for, uh, they're hard to get a hold of this one right here. I got to replace the one I paid $200 for. I paid $200 for right here for, for, for a, for a new Testament Psalms just like this, that was um, that was iron Spottish wood. My, I don't understand how my fingernails are so dirty. <laughs> That's embarrassing. I've been doing some work outside this morning, and I call myself washing my hands. Anyway, um, but anyhow, the um, this one right here though, I got for about twenty bucks. Go figure, you know, I'd like to get 10 more of them at 20 bucks, but probably not going to happen. Um, but they're hard to come by. You gotta, you gotta find them on, uh, you gotta find them on eBay and, and you just got to keep looking. And when you, when you look, when you find one, you got to buy it because they don't, they don't come up very often. And, and of course the longer they go, I mean, they hadn't made them since the nineties. So the, the farther, the, the farther we get from the nineties, the less they're going to come up anyway. Thank you very much. Scott Beck. I appreciate you. Uh, Facebook users has got here late again. Well, that's okay. I, uh, we'll, we'll be fine. You can listen to the replay, but we are glad you're here. Remember, uh, if you want to support what we do, uh, the best way to do that is through Substack. The article that I, that I looked at this morning is an article I wrote. It's published on Substack. Uh, you can also send. Um, you can also send money to us right through PayPal. And the cool thing about it is in 2024, um, I'm every, every dime that we make is going to go to advertising the platform. So I, I really kind of can't wait. Um, ho hopefully we grow in leaps and bounds in 2024. Thank you so much. <laughs> Diana Harden says, I'm not here for your nails, Tony. Well, I appreciate that. And, and normally I don't think about it very much. I just, I know why I know how they got the dirt underneath them. It's because of what I was doing, and even though I washed my hands, I didn't clean out from under my nails. So, I mean, people people do things, you know.
Um, that's it. We're all, we, we all need to pray for each other. Uh, please do that and pray for the work. Pray for all the, the little congregations around the world. Um, there's, I, I, the work is going spectacularly up here. It's amazing. I, I, these people blow my mind and the growth that we have seen. Um, we, we are averaging every week, 32 to 35 people. If we're going, and we're going to come spring, we're going to add even more. Uh, we ordered 58 personal size, uh, apologetics press Bibles. Eight of them were for people of the congregation. And then 50 of them are going to be for us to use as evangelism tools. We're going to try to have, we're, I think we're going to try to do a thing in the spring where we have a push where if you study the Bible with us, um, once you graduate from this little course, you get a certificate and a Bible. And uh, yeah, that's, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, uh, keep that in your prayers. Pray for everybody. That's all I've got. This has been Tony Brewer with Cogitations. Remember, support us if you can. Substack, follow us on YouTube, everywhere. And, um, yeah, good stuff. Uh, that's right, Scott Beck. All right, I got to get off here. God bless every one of y'all. This has been Tony Birth Cogitations. Uh, hopefully, I've said something that's uh, empowered you, enlightened you, edified you, or in some other way added value to your life as you walk towards your, uh, as you continue on down your journey to eternity. And uh, be sure and catch us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn Radio. And again, this has been Tony Burr from Cogitations, and we'll catch you on the flip side.